Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. I'm Robbie Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about some GOP on GOP arguments. We're going to talk about what the uh, fallout of the speaker's race means for the rest of us who live in this country. We're going to talk about some of what President Biden has been up to lately when it comes to this classified document thing, whether it's something you should care about. And we're going to have along for the ride with us our friend Stephen Weber, uh, who you have heard on this show before, who, if you follow me on social media or have read either of my books, you are very familiar with as a character in my life, but also uh, one of my closest friends. Uh, But for the purposes of actually qualifying him beyond his proximity to us, Stephen is currently the political director of the Missouri AFL-CIO. He is the former chairman of the Missouri Democratic Party. He is a Marine, because you're not allowed to say former Marine, but he's like, you know, now grows his hair long and doesn't have to wear a uniform. So he's, you know, he's a former Marine uh, who did two tours of duty in Iraq. And we served together in the state House of Representatives. And he is now a candidate as of this week for the state Senate in Missouri. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. This is my uh, my first podcast I've ever been a repeat uh, a guest on. So I'm excited to be here. Uh, that's I mean, we're honored. We're honored to have you uh, as a as a repeat guest. When you were listing all those things, the only thing I could think was, man, we got to be old to have to have, have that many life experiences. Well, so. as is a constant discussion we have where like the other day when we were talking about your campaign staff uh, and you said to me, uh, one of them was born after 9-11. And it was like, oh, my God, <laughs> we, we are. Yeah, I, I asked him when he when he learned about that. And he said, I think the, the eighth grade, they did 20th century history. And that was at the end or something oh like that. And my it just God. Well, yeah. OK, now that I've got you two and Damar Hamlin is now been discharged from the hospital is having a great recovery. I want to get petty for a second here. OK, <laughs> so you're both Chiefs fans. And there are all these people like Robin D'Angelo who make all this money talking about white privilege, right? They write these books like White Fragility. I'm, I'm and all afraid that. of where I'm, this is going right now. <laughs> I am deep at work on my book, which I'm going to be titling Chief's Privilege, okay. which is all about just the insane privilege that you guys and Luck have as a fan base. Like we, we could talk about the coin flip last year. Now you get gifted a buy in the first round due to a tremendous tragedy. You didn't give it back. I was expecting you to give it back this week and you didn't. Shame on you. I don't know how to start this podcast any other way. Just absolutely it's, shameful. 
it's just another small market Midwest team taking all these breaks, you know? Yeah, yeah. happens all the time. If you had told the Chiefs fan like five years ago that someday, like five years from now, somebody's going to be accusing Chiefs fans of having privilege, they would have ever... I just absolutely lost their minds. It had you guys no are such privilege. You guys about. are doing ring around the rosy before you do a play. It's like crazy. <laughs> that was awesome, uh, by the way. Look, here's what I'll I say do- about that, Ravi. Uh, I have no defense. It's absolutely not fair, but you know. We're awesome. We're, I mean, yeah. we're great. What can, what can we say? And, uh, you know, that play was when even we started to believe that maybe, maybe the NFL is just boring for us. Maybe we're so talented that we've got to find ways to create our own fun. Steven and you know? I and specifically so really, shame on the rest of the NFL for not giving us something else to, to challenge to, we have to like put obstacles in our own way. Uh, enough football talk. Let's start a little differently. I, I, I want to field test something for our audience, given the fact that we have this wonderful year ahead of us of Republican on Republican violence here, not actual violence, let's hope, but we have to say metaphorical that now. Violence. Like now you have to say well, not actual violence. Didn't have to well, say Well, I say that because like in these weeks, we're going to talk about, you know, barbed attacks going back and forth, but there are instances like Mike Rogers lunging, lunging at Matt Gates and things like that, like actual attempted violence between Republicans. But every week is going to bring us a juicy just attack from one Republican on the next. And I feel like we have got to, for morale reasons, highlight some of these moments. Uh, the one I liked the most this week was South Dakota Governor Christy Nome. Shout out to the Garish family. This is really a longtime listeners in South Dakota who've been putting up with political shenanigans in their state. Christy Nome unloaded on DeSantis, criticizing him because he's not pro-life enough because he has a 15-week abortion ban. And it just touched off this Tremendous back and forth between Nome uh, and sort of DeSantis's shadow figures in the press. Like what became clear is that DeSantis himself doesn't appear to be taking his time out to fight back to her. But there is a army of enablers and, and DeSantis fans in all over the sort of bow tie wearing right wing press. So you could see you could see where these things are going. Like there are a lot of people in the grass tops of the Republican Party rooting for DeSantis. Well, uh, Stephen and I are kind of experts on Republican on Republican primary fights. So, Stephen, I'll let you go first as to your reaction to this. I mean, I, this is all like, like when there's not your party's not tied to any sort of ideology. When there's no like battle of different visions, like the Republican primary literally is like going to be, it's like a insult comedy contest, right? It's like whoever can just come up with the worst insults. That's what the Republican Party is going to choose. There's no meaningful policy differences. They're not trying to say, I want to take the party this direction. You want to take the party that direction. It's literally who can dunk on each other the hardest in terms of proving to their base that they're willing and able to dunk on libs, which is the only thing that the Republican Party cares about. So we're just going to see more and more of this because that's like the criteria for being a successful Republican is can you make fun of people? It reminds me of two things. One thing that's uh, real life and the other thing that's not. So I'll start with the not, which is the there's a scene in, I think it's something about Mary, where uh, Ben Stiller, he's hitchhiking and the guy who picks, or he picks up a guy maybe who's hitchhiking and the guy's telling him about how he has a plan for seven minute abs. And Ben Stiller's like, you mean like eight minute abs? And he's like, no, man, no, seven minute <laughs> abs. It's genius, right? <laughs> and so the 14 versus 15 reminds me of that a little. Uh, here's the other thing it reminds me of, uh, which is that when Stephen and I were in the state house uh, and the Republicans were in the majority, they were all jockeying for who was going to get to run for the state Senate and who was going to get to run for the statewide offices as they are now. And every day 
was just them coming in and trying to carve deeper into the bone on issues they had already taken all the meat off of, right? So guns, gays, abortion. And and I remember, Stephen, we used to joke that we would come in every day and sign something that says, yes. we are pro-choice, we are pro-gay, and we are in favor of sensible gun laws. And we would be like, if we just sign that every day and you have the votes on us, can we like do jobs bills? That's what this reminds me of. hundred percent. I remember that just saying, just for the love of God, let's do something else. Like we're not, if you're just trying to get us, we'll just tell you like the things we support and then we can move on. It's so often these, these situations, the, the people that end up like jockeying the hardest and trying to like carve out the most, end up not doing it anyway. Like it ends up not being them. And so all this like fighting and name calling is, is for nothing. And there's so many examples of, of like Republican primaries where there was like four or five candidates circling each other for years. Um, even really the, the 2016 presidential where like for years prior to 2015, like all these other people were planning and plotting and positioning and circuit. And then Trump just came in and kicked the door down. Um, and so it, it doesn't pay off in the long run. Like people might as well do like an actual job because most of the time you don't get the promotion anyway. It's, it's a great point. And it, well, the other thing it does is it's really revealing of their character because, or it's revealing of their mindset because what it reveals about Noam's mindset is that she thinks there's a very narrow space for her to occupy in that Republican primary field, and she doesn't want DeSantis in any of it, right? Whereas, like, mm -hmm. it tends to be that the candidates who make it are the ones who have a more spacious view, where they come in, they're going to do what they would usually do. They're not wor they're not thinking about other potential candidates. They're just running their own playbook. Those are the ones who tend to make it in any on either well, and side. Let's juxtapose her with another with a Democratic governor who people have talked about. It might potentially be a presidential candidate someday, which is Gretchen Whitmer, right? So Gretchen Whitmer's not out there slamming other Democrats. She's not out there taking shots at other people, right? She's actually doing policies. She's blocking abortion bans. She's like talking about repealing right to work. She's talking about helping seniors. Like she's actually, her plan for potentially running for president is I'm going to do a bunch of really cool stuff in my state and people are going to see that. And that's going to be something good. Not I'm going to take shots at another Democratic governor somewhere else in the country. So that there's like mm -hmm. a very clear juxtaposition on how two potential nominees are approaching this. And behind the scenes, just to let people know, like how this all works. I'm sure that Gretchen Whitmer, if she's thinking about running for president at some point, is she's taking meetings across the country. She's making her trips to New York and she's sitting down with those major donors. She's talking about what she's doing in her state. She might even indulge in a conversation or two if it's brought up about other potential Democratic candidates. But she's right. not going to do it in public because that stuff is not supposed to happen until you get close to the voting. Like, And you're right. That's that's the way to do it. The brand of Democrats, we, we had fun with this in our title of our episode last week, the brand of Democrats is that they're in disarray, whatever, but where's the evidence of that anymore? We've gotten so good at in-group discipline that we've even started to play around in the elusive bipartisanship. So Biden you know, was down in Kentucky with McConnell doing photo ops together. And I, I couldn't believe it, honestly. And then he was he just, you know, was shaking hands with Governor Abbott in Texas, you know, who swiftly handed Biden a barbed letter about all sorts of nonsense. But like Biden's out there actually trying to solve problems and, you know, trying to, to do whatever he can in a bipartisan fashion while this party's tearing itself apart. The seven minute abs thing you talked about makes me think I think the term for it is narcissism of small differences is what they say. And, you know, for listeners at home, if you ever want to have fun, find somebody who's like really passionate about what they do and something you don't know a lot about. And you could tell they're really good at something if they just take 
the absurd small details to an extreme. Like, you know, somebody who's like a really good restaurateur and you, they'll be like, did you check out my competitor around town? And they'll be like, well, did you see the font on their menu? Come on now. <laughs> Something They just, they take their stuff so seriously. One thing worth mentioning is this gnome DeSantis fight has been going on for a little while in 2021 at CPAC. She took a jab at DeSantis saying, we've got Republican governors across this country pretending they didn't shut down their states, that they didn't close their beaches, and they didn't mandate masks, and they didn't need to issue shelter-in-place orders. So she basically was saying she wasn't that. It then also came out that she basically tried to lock down South Dakota herself, but was blocked by her own legislature. So she's full of shit, too. I think what I love about this, though, is all these clips at some point, whoever emerges from the primary, we're going to have a lot of good material for ads. I hope that at some point, Noam is in a debate or something where she's like, I'm the only governor who never closed down a beach during COVID. <laughs> South Dakota. <laughs> We're gonna get a we're gonna get a voicemail from somebody who's like, "There's a great lake yeah, in that's right. there's some beautiful lake with beaches in in South Dakota. I'm sure there is, so don't send it to and us." And I'm sure it wasn't closed. Yeah, I <laughs> bet. Even if it was closed, who's gonna enforce that? As you know, when it comes to AG one, uh, I am constantly experimenting with which time of day I'm going to take it. And you know what? The experimentation is over. I have decided this is my routine forever. I'm going to get up in the morning and the first thing I'm going to do, you know, once I've made sure not to neglect any children is drink my AG1 because there have been a couple of occasions, Ravi, where I have forgotten to do it in the afternoon when it wasn't part of my routine and I didn't feel very good as a result. And I don't want that to happen anymore. So, well, I'm out here in Costa Rica and I've been a couple of weeks without my AG1 and I'm, I'm becoming disembodied at this point. And more useless with each day. You look terrible. So you could, I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to say something. Well, yeah, you could avoid that fate. Do what you can right now. And what I love about this is that you don't need a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. They make it easy at Athletic Greens, and they'll give you a one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Let's talk about you know, a corollary to this discussion, which is McCarthy. So McCarthy won. And did he really win? That was really the answer. I don't, I'm not sure he's actually speaker. Like when I used to work at the, the Security Council, they used to have a rotating presidency at the UN Security Council. And every once in a while, like Costa Rica or whatever would be the president of the Security Council if everything wound up right. Now, being president of the Security Council is meaningless because there are five countries where one of them, the United States, that had a veto. And if you don't have veto, nothing matters. Now, what's interesting to me is McCarthy is the equivalent of the president of the the House of Representatives, but everybody gets a veto. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's well, I don't know what he really won here, and it comes out this week that there's a secret agreement that nobody will release between him and the fringe members of his party. But we're starting to see it in plain sight the evidence of what he had to give up in order to get the speakership and, you know, basically America loses here. I don't even know where to start. Well, you got to explain so for much people crazy. who don't know what you're talking about, you got to explain the everybody gets a veto. Okay. So we did talk about this last we week. We did, but I thought you we know, did. some people yeah. don't attend class every week and. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, shame on you. You got to get this. You got to get the notes from here. So basically we already knew coming into last week that McCarthy was going from a point where you need basically half 
of your members to call a vote on the speaker, which is what tradition had been. He had already conceded that five members could call a vote at any time on the speaker uh, and vacate the speakership. And in the process of negotiating to try to you know, win uh, the speakership nomination, he winnowed that down to one person can now call a vote on the speakership. He also gave concessions like the rules committee, like adding freedom caucus members to the rule committee, uh, agreeing not to spend money on primarying freedom caucus members. Uh, you know, he agreed on certain votes that they have to take, which is part of the so-called secret agreement that he hasn't released. And I think that's all crazy, right? So this is going to be the weakest speaker ever. But also, you're starting to see some just crazy votes come up immediately now involving the IRS, involving committing the federal government to a balanced budget within a decade, which in theory, people can say is good or bad, but it would involve cuts to Social Security, Medicare, et cetera. These are the same people who repeatedly voted to increase spending when they like it and have shown no fiscal responsibility whatsoever, but now want to get credit for being fiscally responsible. They took aim at the IRS. They established a an arm of the House that's going to investigate the investigators. And I think Jim Jordan might be the chair of that. Uh, it's called the Select Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I got to catch my breath here. There's just a whole lot of crazy stuff in here. So as much as we, we enjoyed the back and forth between the fringe members, I actually think a lot of really bad things are going to happen, including when we have to vote on the debt ceiling. They've basically got a gun to the head of the American people. So... I want to I want to start with one of the things that has been widely reported and is just I guess example of maybe how how off base our politics have become that like nobody's been able to explain to me and I've asked some some people who would know like how this is legal which is that part of the agreement which was the is that the club for growth won't spend in Republican primaries um, really that's in the there vote for speak that was widely reported as, as one of the yeah. this part of the secret agreement the vote for the speaker is is a public function it's like an actual you know it's a it's a it's a legislative official government business deal and how it was just so casually included about how PACs would spend money. Like that's not like that. That's not legal. You can't agree to vote a certain way in a government function based on how PACs are going to spend money. And everybody just blazed through this. It was just like, Oh, well, and the club for growth, they reached a deal. They're not going to spend in primaries. And it's like, wait, wait, what? That's like, that's really illegal. Like you can't do that. I guess you can if nobody stops you, but you're not supposed to be able to do that. So like that's kind of been buried in the front page, right? Where it was just universally acknowledged that this was a component of it. And then everybody just moved on and nobody was like, wait, wait a minute. We're we're directing the spending of tens of millions of dollars in exchange for people's votes on speaker. Like people have gone to jail for, you know, using copiers um, in, in government buildings and we've agreed to super PAC spending. So um, that's the first thing that I think just like is right there that that needs to be, you know, just call that we can't let our politics, we can't become a place where we negotiate bills based on how a super PAC is going to spend money. The big winners here are the Freedom Caucus. So oh, the yeah. fringe, so in response to a historic ass kicking in the midterms relative to the expectations and the trends, the Republican Party had one of two options. One is to moderate and the other is to double down on crazy. And it's notable that they've doubled down on crazy. They've empowered the most fringe members of their caucus. Nobody's even talking about the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been fully mainstreamed in this process. Like mm -hmm. she's been lockstep as you were, you first notified me of, Jason, and I've now gone down the rabbit hole on this. She's just straight up in leadership now. We don't know exactly what 
committee assignments she's got to get, et cetera. But we went from the point where they were stripping her of committee assignments at a certain point, talking talking about that, to the point now where she's more powerful than Dan Crenshaw. You know, so it's like <laughs> this is the part. Not that Crenshaw is a moderate or anything, but he's clearly a more stable and responsible human being than Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is where they've decided to go as a party. It's why when Mike Rogers lunged at Matt Gates, he had to apologize, right? Like you'd think that most people in that caucus would probably be secretly cheering this on. But this is like, this is a, a strain of what happened with Trump, which is that crazy wins, the bullying wins, and just ever so slightly, one, like the overturn window is, is like a glacier, just moving and moving and moving. And at a certain point you look and it's, it's moved like a hundred miles. Well, I think what should not be lost by all of us when we talk to our friends and relatives about this is that there was another option, right? Like, because your instinct when you hear all this is to go, well, they, they had to figure out a way to get a speaker one way or another. And there's all these members in the Freedom Caucus. And it's like, oh, wait, actually, there's 435 people in the House of Representatives. And we shouldn't just completely give ourselves over to the to the premise that it, it has to be a person who is elected by the majority of the majority party, right? Like right. It, it actually, it actually could just be a person who is elected by the majority of the representatives and they could come from either party. Like they didn't have to actually do this. They could have gone and gotten some Democrats to vote for McCarthy or somebody else. There's a million options. They could have been like, you know what? We're going to make Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger. We, we, there's a million things they could have done, but they chose to do this. And by the way, like if I'm reading it right in the reporting, it's that one member of the House can call for that vote. And that's of yes. either party because they can't say just the majority caucus, right? Steve, oh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure that that's right. And even if it's not, if it's just if it's just their caucus, then you functionally have the same thing, whether you have a Democrat or you have a member of the Freedom Caucus, you have the same rabble rousing incentives. And I was just thinking about like when we were in the minority in the state house, if we could have forced everyone to come to the floor individually to have a vote on the speaker at any time. There would have been no other votes. You and I would have just sat and done that all day. Back and forth. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. everything they were passing was bad. And our entire objective was to make them have to do everything except pass the stuff they wanted to pass. To your point, Nicole, I mean, none of us are, are in the House. None of us can know what the negotiations were or what. But I, I don't get the sense that the Dem demands would have been you need to pass, you know, Medicare for all. It would have been simple things like we need to raise the debt ceiling. We need to pay our bills. And the Republicans made a choice to mainstream Marjorie Taylor Greene rather than to committing to paying our bills, right? Like that, that's the choice that they made. Yeah. Mainstream Marjorie Taylor Greene and ignore some of these charlatans like Santos and their own party. Like, you know, you see these mm -hmm. people, if you start to go through McCarthy's coalition and the people against them, it's actually really hard. Like I say the Freedom Caucus was emboldened, which is true. But even if McCarthy had crushed his opposition, who he invited in his big tent, was enough, right? Like the the parasite had already taken over the organism at that point. Stephen, like the, the point you made a second ago about like what it would have been like on the other side if this exact, well, we've seen it before, right? They had a very similar margin and they were able to work it out without any of these insane demands. But like, let's say you had a similar situation. The like counterpart demand of what the Freedom Caucus has required 
is not like we we got to have a vote on Medicare for all. Like that may have been on the Democratic side, uh, sort of like a negotiation. The counterpart is like we need to have a vote on defunding the military. Right. Like like that's because they're like we need we have to vote on things like uh, getting rid of the IRS. We have to you know, mm -hmm. like it's it is truly giving yourself over to the craziest of the crazy. You know, last time I was on, um, I was here to talk about redistricting. Right. And so much of this goes back to how we draw maps these days and how districts are gerrymandered into these incredibly safe seats where most of these Republicans are more worried about losing a primary than they are a general. And so their default, every single decision point is crazy. Right. I'm worried about being out crazy. So I need to be crazy. OK, yeah. today's decision is what? Crazy. OK, what's tomorrow's decision? Well, tomorrow I'm going to be crazy. And pretty soon you've just worked your way so far down to crazy. And, and a lot of it just, you know, starts from the way these maps are drawn. And it, it, it builds upon itself because mm -hmm. if you were crazy yesterday, then crazy tomorrow is crazier than yesterday, right? Because what well, look counted at Liz is Cheney. crazy yesterday, right? Like what yeah. Liz Cheney is now the moderate, right? It, 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 who would have thought that like five, you know, five, six years ago? So, okay, here's a prediction. There are certain uh, members like Nancy Mace, who are the so-called moderates, right? I don't want to get into whether Nancy Mace is actually a moderate or not, but she's a Republican from South Carolina. And she started to call out, she was part of McCarthy's coalition, and she started to call out McCarthy for his lack of transparency around some of these changes in the secret deal, et cetera. She wound up, she threatened not to vote against the new rules package, basically how the House was going to govern, but she wound up relenting. I think it's just as likely that the first vote against McCarthy comes from within his coalition, his original coalition, than from without it, because uh, some of these people are just going to be pissed. They're looking at these sort of gremlins taking over the chamber, and, and they're just like, they'll be fed up. And a lot of these people are being stripped of their committee. Like, you know, one of the reasons why that guy lunged at Matt Gates is that he was supposed to chair, I think, the Armed Services Committee or something and wind up not. So I think... These people are going to get pissed and McCarthy's got his hands filled. There is one rhetorical move I want to point out, though, that Nancy Mace did that I think you're going to start to see out there. And I think listeners at home may see this all the time. She said this to the press, the following. And, and tell me tell me what the rhetorical move here is, because I see this in a lot of places. She, she says, if it's not OK for the far left to cut deals in secret, then why is it OK for a few on the far right to cut deals in secret? So I see this everywhere. Everything is, oh... The biggest insult I could give you is that the far left does this. I'm like, what are they talking about? What secret deal is this? I've seen like, the same thing. I see the version I saw the other day was, uh, you know, if we're going to lie and we're going to, uh, you know, rule with an iron fist and not care about the law, then we may as well be liberals. And I'm like, well, what? What? Like, <laughs> we're just standing here, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, it's crazy. Call this shit out at home is what I'm saying. Force somebody to explain to you. The secret deal Nancy Pelosi cut, you know, she was she was governing with half half the people had to call, you know, like what, what was Nancy Pelosi doing? That's anywhere remotely similar to this. Come on, force people to provide evidence. One of the ones I did want to talk about is this defund the IRS thing. The reason I want to talk about it is because it's like classic. There are no consequences when you don't actually control all the level levers of power, right? To fill people in on it, it's 
there's a, an amount of funding and an increase in agents that the IRS is supposed to get in the in the budget that's already been passed over the next 10 years. And it's in order to, you know, actually do things like make sure people get their refunds, make sure, you know, like do the work of government, whether it's IRS or anything else, actually, you know, process paperwork and that kind of stuff. At the same time, it's a great sounding, crazy Republican talking point to be like, I don't want the IRS to be any bigger. Now, what it's doing is it's making the IRS more effective and easier to deal with. But that's not what they're saying. They're just acting like it's just more people getting more taxes from you. So they know that it would wreck all sorts of things for their own constituents, right? If if this doesn't actually go through, if the funding's not actually there, people are going to be really upset that they're not getting their refunds on time and stuff like that. But it sounds great to say, let's just defund it. So if they controlled like the Senate and the White House, there's no way that they would want this. But they are absolutely going to vote for this because they know that the Democrats will be the adults. And I got to be honest, like I'm worried about it because it sounds great politically. And we are going to be the brakes on this whole defund the IRS thing. I mean, am I like the only one worried? About? I don't know what to do about it. I mean, the only thing I would quibble with is I, I, I'm not sure. I think they would probably run the car into the ditch even if they were in charge. Like, I don't think that they That's true. are doing crazy <laughs> you're stuff. Right. Maybe you're right. Um, yeah, I don't think they're doing crazy stuff knowing the Democrats are going to be the brakes. Although, I mean, we continually bail them out, like in terms of like paying our bills and, and all those things. But I think they're completely happy at this point because of what we just talked about with what they've ceded, the power they've ceded to the, the craziest part of their own coalition. I think that they're happy to, to drive the car into a ditch. I guess you're right. I think we have to start conditioning ourselves because we, we've most of our lives, the Republicans have been this disciplined, evil battleship, uh, you know, Death Star that we've been dealing with. And I think now it's just this chaotic collection of people that sometimes it's not as they're not as rational and organized as we've been used to. And so often saying this is their straight line motivation and outcome that they're looking for and the sort of chess that they've been so good at playing, which I want to give them credit for. They've 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 maximized their hand without a doubt with the American people like they've taken a minority of the public and continued to, you know, through redistricting and through the just geographic hold they have and campaign finance, et cetera. They have maximized their hand up until now, in part because they've been so organized and disciplined. But they are full-blown chaos right now. And so I think in part, yes, there are elements of them that I think have like have this grand scheme. But then I think there are just a lot of nihilists on their side who just That's they, they might not even be thinking about the politics. They might just be like, we're going to see it with the FBI too, right? We've talked about the FBI. You remember like when they were talking about defund the FBI, which they unfortunately have a lot of people on the left with them on this too. The extreme left, I would say, is the day that they were talking about defunding the FBI, I think I, I went through and I read off just one day in the life of the FBI, what the FBI does, right? And I think we got to get conditioned to start defending institutions. Like they're they're apprehending child molesters and disbanding human trafficking rings and catching terrorists. You know, I, it's weird because we're Democrats. We're not used to talking about like, def, you know, defending law enforcement and stuff like this, but this is where we're going to be. We're, one institution after another is going to come under threat and we're going to have to start educating the American public about why these institutions are important in our lives, get, getting concrete about it. I think that one thing about that issue, and I think we're going to talk about immigration later, it's it's parallel with immigration, is it is the Republican dream issue of it's something we can uh, inflame the masses over because it sounds one way, but really the people it benefits are our wealthy donors, right? So like 
the, a lot of those, you know, like the reason you need to have like auditors and, and highly trained people at the IRS is because uh, people who have to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes have a lot of incentive to get really creative and how they don't have to pay those hundreds of millions of dollars. And so we actually need smart people to figure that out. So it, a lot of these is not about, you know, people like middle-class folks who are have pretty straightforward taxes and are, are pulling their weight. It's about making sure there aren't really wealthy tax cheats. And so the Republican dream is always, how do we get the masses to do the work of the mega wealthy? And this fits that perfectly. And it's sort of like immigration. I think we'll talk about later. It's yeah. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of coining the term right to work. It's like going out and being like, you know, we just think every worker should have the right, right. to choose whether to be in a union shop, which happens yeah. to just have the side effect of severely weakening the power of unions to recruit uh, and organize and most of all bargain for benefits for workers, but, and is great for people who are in management and own company. Okay, right to work. It's funny you should say this. This is a bit of a tangent, but it's really important on the messaging side of things. So the Lena Khan at the FTC announced this week that she is going to push through a rule that bans non-compete agreements around the country. Big deal, right? The Big Supreme deal. Court's going to have a lot to say about it. We've talked about the major questions doctrine on this podcast before. When we get into that, I think the Supreme Court is going to probably get in her way, but she definitely has the votes on the FTC. I talked to this guy, Connor Doherty, this week, who's a New York Times reporter who's written about these non-compete agreements. And he said to me that he heard a Republican, I think it might have been in Arizona, say back to him, he was against non-compete agreements because he's for a right to work. And I was like, that's an interesting, that's an interesting opportunity right there. I'm like, hmm. Right to work, non-compete agreements. I don't know. Workshopping it. It's is like there... a triple negative or a quadruple negative. It's like, right. okay, this is the... Right. Yeah. Part of what I'm thinking is like, all right, well, maybe we just turn their rhetoric against them. But I'll, I'll put a bookmark in that. It's just I mean, the think straightforward reason is like, you believe in capitalism. You believe work, like like the way capitalism works, people have the freedom to, to move around and sell their labor and a non-compete is inherently anti-capitalist, right? right? So like, and just on a baseline, like, you can't have any sort of model of a capitalist society. Like an economist could not draw a model. If you said, hey, model of capitalism, it could not include non-competes. Guess how quietly effective this administration has been and could be even more if they didn't have the Supreme Court standing in their way is that nobody's been talking about this FTC ruling this week. It's kind of a footnote, but it affects something 20 or 30% of workers in this country are under non-compete agreements. And as Doherty and others have written about, it, the, people think non-compete, it's the big lawyer at the firm or the engineer, but it's now you're just as likely to have a non-compete agreement in a blue collar job as a white collar job. If you had non-college degree are just as likely to have a non-compete agreement as you are somebody with a doctorate. And he had like crazy examples, like somebody working at a Jimmy John's, somebody yep. who, who described himself. So I'm not describing the job, but this guy who described himself in the article as, quote, just shoveling dirt. Now, that's how he describes his job, I'm sure is really important. But he was barred from getting a job somewhere else. So th these are often jobs that are lower on the income scale. And so it's not just the person with a fancy degree and the intellectual property over the key engineering process or whatever. So this is, I think, a really important issue, maybe a, a quietly important issue that we might be able to talk about in the next election. All right. Well, let's talk about something else dominating the news. Biden, turns out he had what I think as of today is 10 classified documents 
uh, found in this, like one of his like sort of post-presidential offices. Post-vice presidential. Post-vice presidential offices. And uh, his lawyers promptly turned it over. This made headlines. I think it's obvious at this point, we'll stipulate that this is different than what Trump did, which was obfuscate, lie, and fight uh, the records keeping offices every step of the way. And he had way, way, way more documents. But it's also worth acknowledging that this does muddy the case against Trump, at least from a public perception standpoint, because they're going to muck this up and try to equate the two. The media is doing a lot of the work for Trump by not providing a lot of nuance about what the difference between these two things. What what impact do we think this is going to have? I wanted to make sure we address this because I think it's clearly being wall-to-wall coverage on Fox News and all all across like right-wing social media. And I just want people to have a quick way to respond to it. And here's my analogy. All right. Biden and Trump went to the same store. All right. Let's say they went like, I don't know, to TJ Maxx, right? Some place where there's like little knickknacks and lots of different things you can buy. Right. And Biden went to the register and he bought a bunch of things and he didn't realized that one of those things didn't get scanned, right? And then he went to walk out of the store and the little thing went beep and he turned around, he went back. He's like, oh, hey, I didn't pay for this, right? Trump went to the store, (laughs) put all of the things in his pockets, walked out. And then when the thing went beep, he just ran to his car and drove away. And like, (laughs) that's the difference here, right? Is like one of them accidentally had stuff and then like self-reported, oh, hey, I have this thing. I found it. I'm going to give it back to you now. And the other is like, didn't self-report. And then when it was found, fought like crazy to not give it back. It is infuriating though. I mean, because like, you're, you're absolutely right. Like these are totally different things. But going back to your point earlier about how they will, you know, they'll say something about like, well, at least um, if we're going to do this, we're just like the left. That's it's easily going to become the Republican talking point. And what Trump did is like a really serious um, threat to to national security, to to international security. Like it's like a grave danger. And um, whether somebody, you know, was just sloppy or whatever, they've really given him a rhetorical out, which the entire right wing is going to use. And it's just frustrating. Like it's just I'm actually mad at the person that screwed this up. Like we need to, I personally think we need to find out who they are and they need to get like banished from any sort of important jobs because like what they did, this mistake they made is may empower someone to give away nuclear secrets to another country, right? Like it's, it's going to get in the way of this and that's really, really frustrating. Yeah, because to your point, it is not just politically and rhetorically that it has equated the two. You know, I saw an article where people are speculating about how much more difficult it makes the legal decision for Garland, right? Because yeah. ultimately, like when Jack Smith comes back and says, okay, uh, I can't remember if he's the special prosecutor over the over the document case as well, but ultimately the decision about indictment is going to have to come to Garland, right? And now this makes that legal decision more politically treacherous, which means, to Stephen's point, it might make it a lot less likely that Trump actually suffers legal consequences for doing this thing that really jeopardized national security, which incentivizes people to potentially do it in the future. Well, and the good news is that this wasn't, I don't get the sense that this was where, at least politically, like Biden was going to hang his hat on his, you know, his case against Trump. And if, if he has to go head to head with Trump again in the next election. And it's also worth noting that Trump is under such an avalanche of legal 
jeopardy right now from everything from January 6th to his own finances, et cetera, that this particular case is not the only case uh, that's important in holding him legally accountable. So yeah, but it is frustrating. And the worst outcome here is that now there's just a standard that people won't take care of these things in the future. Okay, now that we've solved all of the world's current problems, let's talk about, you know, Stephen's efforts in Missouri. So just to give people a little bit of context, this is not a shock to anybody, particularly listeners in Missouri, but also listeners outside Missouri. Democrats have not exactly been gaining massive ground in the parts of Missouri outside Kansas City and St. Louis over the last several years. So uh, it is a very big deal that Stephen has made the decision to uh, run for a state Senate seat that is in the very middle of Missouri, represents his hometown of Columbia, Missouri, uh, home of the University of Missouri. And I, I'll let Steve, Stephen likes to wax on about the <laughs> utopia that is Columbia. So I'm not going to you know, be on his corner here. But Stephen, talk about the decision to do this and why, you know, a race like this is important with the context that you're involved in a lot of big stuff. You're you're involved as the political director for the FLCIO. You're you're a player easily at the statewide level, if not the national level. And you're looking at this going, this state Senate race, this seat is where I want to plant my flag and make a difference. So talk to listeners about why. You talk a lot about grabbing an oar um, and and how only way we're going to move this is everybody rowing and everybody pulling. And, and as a as a you know AFLCA political director, I go around all the time and I talk to union members and I tell them that we need them to run for office. That we need um, you know representatives of working people actually at the table, whether it's school boards or city councils or legislatures or or things like that. And so for me, this is sort of an extension of that. I think that the the Missouri legislature, like all legislatures has a tremendous impact on people's lives. And it's often a branch of government that doesn't get covered. It just not, it's not as uh, glamorous as, as national politics, but the choices that are made there and the decisions that make there affect people's daily lives, they affect their futures, they affect their opportunities. And we need good people in those legislatures all across the country. You know, I actually ran for, for a similar seat as this. It was, it was this, this county and then some other rural part of mid-Missouri um, in 2016. And I, and I narrowly lost um, and the district has been redistricted. So it's, it's an area that I won last time, just my, my home County of Boone County. But I think over the last few years, you know, I, like a lot of us, I've, I've really come to understand that this, this struggle against extremism is not a flash in the pan, that it's, it's something that is going to take years. It's the struggle of our generation. I didn't think that I never expected, you know, defending American democracy, American elections um, internally to be that struggle. But I think it is that. And so uh, for me, like, you know, my goal is, is to win. It's a, it's a four year term. Um, and I'd like to do in Missouri, you can do a total of two terms. So I can do a total of eight years. So I'm going to try to commit eight years of my life and then plus the two years of campaigning. So the next decade of my life to working on this. And I think that really just is like, this is going to be it's not the kind of thing like in, in 08 where you, you win one big national election and you expect everything to have changed. Like it's going to take constant sustained pressure from everyone all around the country, everyone grabbing their oar and not just rowing a couple of times, but like continuing to do that. And so for me, that's what this is. This is like, this is where I can make a difference and I'm committing, you know, um, I'll be turning 40 here um, in a few months and I'm going to commit my 40s to this project, this goal of um, representing my home county in, in the Missouri legislature and using that as a platform to try to make people's lives better and to fight against extremism that is sweeping over the nation. 
You know what it makes me think about is all those people who say to folks like you and me, why do you still live there? Mm-hmm. Like, and there are people who listen to this show who, there are a lot of people who listen to this show who live in, you know, more red areas, but are progressive. But, you know, I know from meeting our listeners that there are also a lot of people who listen to the show who live on the Upper West Side in Manhattan and don't know any Republicans, but they find really interesting, you know, the pursuits of actually trying to make progress in, in red areas. And those people often, I think, wonder, like, why do they still live in those places? And the answer is because it's home, right? And I know, yeah. like, I know how passionate you are about your home. You, anybody who will listen, you tell them about Columbia, Missouri and why they should live there. But so I just, you know, you have choices. You have a lot of different choices and you chose to make this one. And I think, I think it sort of speaks to the idea that home really matters and that people should make their fight where they're from. If, if I'm successful running, I'll, I'll almost certainly be serving in, in a Republican controlled legislature the entire time. Um, you know, likely there'll be a Republican governor the entire time, but whether we can stop some really bad bills, like, you know, they filed bills, um, like bounty bills, right. Where you can, uh, that was filed last session uh, here in Missouri, like that we saw in Texas where uh, you can basically collect a bounty. If you can, you know, report on a woman who has left the state, um, to seek abortion care, um, trying to stop that. Like, that's a big deal. Like it's, that matters to the people of Missouri, whether we can stop that or not. So like, no, maybe all my, my legislative agenda won't, won't pass, but I can try to make people's lives here better. And that's a real thing. And that's really important. The second thing is politics changes, things change, but it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of work. And if people, um, in red areas, um, and and even in in blue areas where there's bad representation, if they don't step up and make that change, like it's not going to happen. Somebody has to force that change. And so, um, those two reasons really are are the main reason I want to try to do this. Well, people can, uh, give you money. I'm giving you money. Uh, I hope uh, everybody listening to this gives you money, um, because it's, it's a really important race. And it's, as, as you pointed out, it's a very winnable race. Like I want people to understand Stephen is not saying like, look, I mean, he, he does believe, and we both believe that it's really important to run in every area, whether you can win or not, that is important, but this is not that this is Stephen can win this race and it can make a real difference and, and people should support him. So where can they give you money? Well, um, so we haven't, we haven't won a, a race outside of St. Louis or Kansas city since 2006, the state, state Senate race in Missouri. And so we're going to, we're going to try to change that. Um, it'll be 18 years since it was last happened, but I think we can make it happen. Um, so we're actually, we're, we're, we don't have a website yet we're, we will, um, we're still getting that built. So it's one of the challenges of running from out of office, but I've got a Facebook page, uh, Steven Weber, there's an act blue link there. Um, it's posted on Twitter at S underscore Weber with two B's. Um, and, uh, appreciate the support that anybody could throw me. Just go to my Twitter feed if you if you don't know, and like because uh, it's all over. Like you just scroll down a little, and you'll find me telling you to give Stephen money. Um, all right, man. Thanks for doing this. Hey, appreciate you guys having me. All right, as always, you can let us know what you think. You can send us an email. You can leave us a voicemail. The email is m54 at wondermedianetwork.com, m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. The voicemail is 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Stephen Weber is at S underscore Weber, W-E-B-B-E-R on Twitter. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.
Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, Desua Agbanile, and Sarah Schleed. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. A special thanks to Diana Cantor. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.